0: Welcome to Talking About Blood. I'm Helen Osborne, host of this podcast series and a member of the advisory board for The Blood Project. I also produce and host my own podcast series called Health Literacy Out Loud. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Isaac Odami, who is Hematology Section Head of the Division of Hematology Oncology at the Sick Kids Center in Toronto, Canada. The focus of his clinical care and research are patients with sickle cell disease and thalassemia. Among his many accomplishments, Dr. Odami is Medical Director of the Global Sickle Cell Disease Network. This network builds on enduring collaborations between clinicians and scientists worldwide to further research and advance patient care, particularly in parts of the world with the heaviest disease burden. Welcome to Talking About Blood, Isaac.
1: Thank you very much, Helen.
0: Let's start at the very beginning. Can you explain For all of us, just overall, what is sickle cell disease?
1: So sickle cell disease is um, an inherited disorder of of blood, the protein in blood that makes our blood look red, hemoglobin. Okay. And the abnormality is inherited, which if the patient uh, has the disorder, the hemoglobin rather than staying fluid throughout the passage of blood uh, in the body sometimes forms a gel and and this jelly hemoglobin distorts the normal donut shape of the red cell to a circle like the farm tool circle looking like a a banana shape or a moon shape, that is why it's called sickle cell. It looks like a sickle okay. uh, in shape. And, and this kind of distortion not only uh, makes it rigid and, and make it break easily, it also makes it sticky to the smooth lining of blood vessels uh, we call endothelium.
0: Okay, so let me put this in kind of in my terms, being a non-physician. So it gets this odd shape, this this distortion of that cell, makes, and it makes it more sticky? It sticks to the vessel that it passes through?
1: Yes, and it breaks down more easily. So the cell doesn't live long enough. It breaks down much faster than it would normally do. Okay. So over time, a combination of all this means that the patient will have anemia because the blood is breaking down much faster. And also that the stickiness of the cell to the lining of the blood vessels means that it's more likely to clog small blood vessels. And when it does that, it stuffs the tissues of oxygen and causes inflammation which leads to excruciating pain oh to be a hallmark of sickle cell anemia, so-called vaso-occlusive pain episodes, or some call it pain crisis.
0: A pain crisis. And this is lifelong? This starts in children?
1: It starts in children. When we are born uh, in the womb, we have a different kind of blood, which slowly switches to adult blood soon after we are born, and so the circle doesn't manifest until a few months after birth. But from that time on, this process happens throughout the life of the patient.
0: And it's always so painful.
1: It, it comes. It comes. It comes in in spells, so they they don't have pain all the time. But from time to time, they get these spells of excruciating pain, which is the number one reason they seek care in hospital.
0: Is this, well, I'm speaking from the U.S. You're in Canada. How prevalent is sickle cell disease in either of our countries or other places around the world?
1: So it turns out that this variant of hemoglobin or this mutation arose thousands of years ago and over time spread in areas where malaria is endemic because it turns out that if you have just one copy of this gene Mm -hmm. in your system you are more resistant against malaria infection as a result over time people who have just one copy we call them carriers they they don't you need two copies to have the disease if you just have one copy you actually actually have a survival advantage and so you can Im- imagine that over time a large number of surviving adults will have the traits we call it a trait. they are carriers and therefore will be at risk of having children who have a double copy of the gene so It happens to be predominant in areas of the world where malaria was endemic, which is why people of African descent, Mm -hmm. people of Indian descent, people of Mediterranean descent, Middle Eastern descent, happen to be the people predominantly affected. And in modern times, areas of the world where people from these regions have traveled for example, in the United States, the slave trade will have been the reason why the gene was transferred to the North Americas. If you look at Europe and other areas of the world, uh, travel, economic travel, refugee migrations will account for modern day spread of the gene. Oh. So currently, Cell is found all around the world right. because of migrations.
0: Wow, that brings in all kinds of sociological issues, too, when you talked about coming to the U.S. because of the slave trade. It was like, oh. The other issue you talked about is this excruciating pain, and you said that people have to go to the hospital. But if it's predominantly in countries in Africa and India and um, other parts of the world, is healthcare as prevalent and ex- as accessible as it is in your country and mine now?
1: So that's the challenge with sickle cell anemia. Where the disease is, is most pre- pre- prevalent, mm-hmm. where the burden is heaviest, happens to be regions in the world where resources for diagnosis and treatment are limited. And that is the reason why we formed the Global Circle Cell Disease Network to highlight this challenge, to accelerate the pace of partnerships with counterparts who live in those parts of the world so that we can improve research and advance clinical care for patients in those regions. So whereas in North America, maybe in the United States, there may be 100,000 patients, in Canada, maybe there may be up to about uh, six to 7,000 patients in a country like nigeria every year over a hundred thousand are born every year with the disease wow so the whole complement of the total number of sickle cell patients living in the united states are born in a year in nigeria
0: oh i am kind yes. of coming out almost a loss for words. Can you tell us about the treatment for it? So a child might go into the hospital and maybe you're treating his or her pain but what other kinds of treatments what progress is happening?
1: So it turns out that the thing that threatens the lives of children born with this disease is not so much the pain the pain is excruciating and very discomforting Mm -hmm. but one aspect of sickle cell anemia also is susceptibility to infection because these children lose the function of the spleen, which is an organ in the belly, on the left side of the belly, that actually filters the blood and participates in fighting certain infections. Mm-hmm. A notable one is a pneumonia bug called the pneumococcus. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that circle cell children are very susceptible to getting disseminated infection from this bug. And that is the reason why we do newborn screening in the richer parts of the world, because by detecting them early, one can give them antibiotics, penicillin, to prevent this infection.
0: Okay. And every flare-up, do you have to be treating the infection?
1: So so you try to prevent the infection, and when they are sick with fever, they have to be seen in hospital to make sure that they don't have infection in the blood, which will require treatment. That is a major threat to their lives. But then the pain that occurs is something that requires treatment in emergency departments because it has to be treated uh, quickly, and that is where sickle cell patients face challenges whether they are young or old, when they go to emergency departments, because sometimes their pain is not as well recognized, and their pain is not treated promptly enough. And this is an area of angst for social patients across the world, that somehow their pain is not believed, and they're not given treatment promptly enough. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there is clear evidence that sometimes they, they they feel that they are being discriminated against in being able to access care
0: because train, pain is so subjective too right
1: exactly, exactly pain is a subjective thing it's not something that you have a, an accurate measure of it's not something that you use a tool to measure so you've got to believe the patient when they say they have pain otherwise there's distrust and there's a, a kind of a an adversarial relationship between the patient and the provider. And these are issues that really we are working hard to try to improve.
0: I'm hearing from you so many issues beyond the physiologic, beyond the medical, just all the sociologic and the communication ones and the subjectivity and the value judgments and all of that in some of the areas where we're of the world where healthcare is least accessible. Can you tell us, I know you're very, very active in this network. Is there some good news coming out of that? This sounds like an almost intractable problem.
1: Yes, some good news is coming out of it because really um, what these systems need is strong advocacy and advocacy um, uh, from the public, advocacy from providers, that tries to make an impression on governments to have the will to provide the healthcare resources to treat patients. So we are making some inroads into that. The other area where we're making some inroads is establishing some newborn screening programs where early diagnosis of this disease is done. We are struggling a lot because the systems cannot deal with the high numbers of deaths and you don't have a universal approach where every child born is tested. Thirdly, we know that these patients need to be seen promptly, having access to emergency care. It may not be available, particularly in rural settings, in low-income countries. Uh, These are challenges in accessing care. So we are shifting emphasis in being able to uh, implement preventive therapies. So there are what we call disease modifying therapies. Okay. An example being a medication called hydroxyurea, which actually helps to improve circle cell and reduce the number of pain episodes and they are some of the complications that leads to hospitalization in these patients. So we believe that low income countries actually need to spread the use of these therapies so that one can be preventive rather than wait for these crises to occur when access to care is limited and it's not timely enough to address the needs of patients.
0: As I said, you're bringing up so many elements. Well, Isaac, yeah, I think you're also on the advisory board uh, for the blood project as am I. You know that we have that the website is a great resource and it has people of all perspectives. We have seasoned hematologists well into their careers who've been doing this a long time. We have people who want to go into the healthcare or medical fields, might be in their residency, may or may not be hematologists. And we have people who are just curious about all things about blood. I'm curious, from your perspective, what can all of us do about this worldwide problem, especially in those low-income countries, about sickle cell disease? Maybe we'll start from the top. What can practicing physicians do about this? Someone who's been working at this a while, what would what would be on your wish list? What would you like them to know or do?
1: Well, I think uh, for practicing hematologists in North America or Europe, uh, the richer parts of the world. I think a new day has dawned in that there have been recent advances in our understanding of this disease, which is creating opportunities for new treatments and even curative therapies. And so the science and the understanding of how our blood works and how sickle cell causes symptoms is revealing some insights into how one may better treat this disease or even cure it. And in this genomic era, areas like bone marrow transplant and gene therapy, genome editing, are showing a high degree of promise for providing avenues for cure. But even before then, before cure can be accessible, we think that we have a better handle of Being able to treat patients in a preventive way to minimize the complications and to improve quality of life. So I will say to young and up and coming hematologists that the field is ripe for young uh, doctors and other professionals who really want to use the best of science to provide better care for these patients. And to provide a fulfilling career to people who feel that they are making a difference to patients' lives. So, sickle cell disease is not what it used to be maybe 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of advancement. There are a lot of new things on the horizon. And I think the field is becoming exciting. And I'm hoping that many who are listening or who will be listening to this podcast will find this uh, uh, as a, a hook. Uh, to think about pursuing careers in this area.
0: You certainly are an inspiration for that. Is there a website where people can be learning more about your Global Sickle Cell Disease Network?
1: Yes. If if they go to global uh we have a, a website that provides some information about what the mission of the network is, uh, news and stories about what is happening in other parts of the world, particularly in low-income countries, and what events are taking place to try to bring um, clinicians and scientists together. So, for example, this June in Paris, we are having the fourth Global Congress on Sickle Cell Disease that will be discussing the best science, and not only that, how it even affects low-resource settings where the disease burden is heaviest.
0: I, what an opportunity for people. I know other physicians and other health pe- care people I know who are have such global perspectives, and I think that it might really resonate with them to know about this wonderful work. So what's your advice or tips for people like me who are simply curious about this?
1: Well, I think what I want people to know is that sickle cell disease was one of the first diseases in humans, in humans, really? for which okay. the genetic cause was known.
0: Oh, so, for which the genetic cause is known,
1: huh? Yes. Yeah, yeah, so, so it, 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 well, well before we even understood modern molecular biology, we knew we knew the protein abnormality in sickle cell disease. It's taking us so long to get to where we are, primarily because this disease is more prevalent in parts of the world where the resources for research and clinical advancement are limited. But that is beginning to change now. And the way for us to really make uh, advancements quickly enough to save lives is to foster partnerships between Rich countries and poor countries, between agencies like the World Health Organization mm-hmm. and other international bodies that fund global health, to accelerate the pace of initiating programs, particularly in sub Saharan Africa and India, mm-hmm. where the disease is spreading is so heavy. And so I'm hoping that people like yourselves will become aware of it, and with the awareness, Will be engaged in any effort that requires support for programs in low-income countries.
0: Thank you, Isaac. I am your supporter, cheering on this work. And when you said you want us to learn more, you've you've shared so much in this podcast that I didn't know before about the origin of the disease, the history of the disease, how it affects people, and your hope and your experience about the science and the interventions that are coming ahead. Thank you so much for all you do on behalf of helping sick kids with this disease get better Um, understanding the science and most of all for now for sharing it with us on talking about blood thank you isaac
1: it's a pleasure helen and thank you for your time
0: as we just heard from dr isaac odami it's important to understand many of the blood diseases that we have including those like sickle cell disease that disproportionately affects those in low-income areas of the world. To learn more about The Blood Project and explore its many resources for professionals, trainees, and patients, go to thebloodproject.com. I invite you to also listen to my podcast series about health communication that's at healthliteracyoutloud.com. Please help spread the word about this podcast series and The Blood Project. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Helen Osborne.